Well, hello and happy Friday. Today is Friday, June 24th, and this is Frequently Asked Questions for Backyard Beekeepers, episode number 164. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So I'm glad that you're here today. It is warming up outside. How warm is it? 68 degrees Fahrenheit, and that is 20 degrees Celsius on the rise. Tomorrow it's going to be 88 degrees Fahrenheit, so more hot weather to come. Lots of great beekeeping going on. We have uh, something's blooming. Something's really providing a lot of golden pollen because there's Cheeto-colored pollen coming in the hive super fast, which is great. There's uh, clover everywhere. I would love it if they were on the clover because that provides a really good light-colored honey around here. And I'm sure they are, but that's not where they're getting the pollen because clover pollen's actually pretty dark, tan to brown. So interesting stuff. What else can we talk about? Oh, I want to give an update before we get started today. If you want to know what we're going to talk about, please look down in the video description below. And all the topics that we're going to cover today are going to be listed down there in order, as well as any relevant links that might give you more information and so on. So I'm going to give an update about the, uh, the drones. The colony that we had that was getting piled by drones. And we're still looking at that. But because people have asked me in the past, hey, Fred, why are so many drones? collecting on this one hive and this is not the only hive in the apiary so i made a video showed it put it out without narration because i forget things from time to time so then i put out the same video with a narration so over the past week if you want to look at that you can see what's going on but uh we think that they're pheromone driven and here's why they didn't come from that hive overall i think see we're just thinking we're just speculating because there are some unknowns here, but that drone storm, whatever you want to call it, I know the title says thousands of drones arrive at this beehive. Okay, maybe hundreds, maybe maybe tens of drones coming and going in and out. It was a drone, you know, high traffic time of day. And some of the drones that were leaving looked like they'd been fed. But we knew the history of that hive because I removed the queen from that hive. So it was a recent split. So they're making a new queen. And around 10 to 12 days after the new queen would have been made and capable of flying and mating, I suspect she went on a mating flight, came back, and on her way back, she must attract the attention of drones, lots of them. There's got to be something to do with the pheromone of a young queen, a recently mated queen, a queen yet to be mated. We know that when they get to the drone congregation area, which could be anywhere, by the way, could be really far away because some people speculated, well, doesn't the queen fly farther than drones can fly? That's true. Record-setting queens have traveled as far as nine miles. Extremely rare. That's a record. I'm sure queens would love to go and just mate somewhere, you know, not too far away. We know that drones can fly a couple of kilometers, maybe up to two kilometers, 1.5 kilometers. But drones also, they require a lot of fuel to do what they do. So a lot of studies have been done, like how long can drones loiter in a drone congregation area? And for those of you who don't know, this is where drones collect, and it's at an altitude separate from normal flight paths of foraging honeybees. And it's where queen bees fly in, and they get mated on their virgin mating flight. So the likelihood that the drones would leave the resident colony and follow their own newly hatched virgin queen out to that drone congregation area, probably pretty rare. But the idea that on her way back 
the pheromone from that queen, even though she's just been mated, because other people speculate, well, if she's been mated, then they wouldn't be interested. Okay, yeah, they would be, because queens don't mate with one drone. They mate with up to 20. So you hear a lot of numbers out there, and they do that because they take a queen that's been mated, and they evaluate the sperm that she has when she comes back, and how many contributing drones were there. That's how they determine through DNA that they were all different drones up to 20 have been identified. So she only needs three. So she mates for more than three. She's just out there having a good time. We don't know what's going on. But one thing's for sure, once a drone is mated with her, uh, this leads me to another sidebar here. Some people will send me pictures of a drone with the reproductive organs distended from the abdomen of the drone but they're still on the drone and the drone is dead on the landing board. That drone has not mated with the queen. How do we know? We know that because when a drone mates with the queen, its reproductive organ detaches and remains with the queen. And then the next drone to mate with the queen must remove that and then they replace that with their own reproductive organ. And the queen initially makes a decision she can close up her abdomen, she can close up her receptacle for that reproductive organ to get in there and she can make the decision to allow it or not allow it. But once the frenzy starts, it's pretty much game over. They mate. And then I think that on her path back, now it's maybe far-fetched that they come from the actual drone congregation area because in some cases they can only spend minutes there. Sometimes seconds there. And they did those studies by putting queens that were virgins in cages, put them aloft in a balloon, and then they traveled it through different areas at different altitudes, and they counted the number of drones that would congregate or follow the queen, the comet of drones that pursue the queen. They've also done other tests to see how fast it could be moving, how fast can drones fly to catch up with the queen. So there's all this stuff. Very little study is really being done on drones. Reproduction is very important, but the health, nutrition, and likelihood that the queen can get back from a mating flight is top of the list. We want her to make it back. So then, on her way back from the drone congregation area, I think some drones see her coming and they follow her. And they follow her first visually and then pheromone-wise. She still has an interesting pheromone. This leads me to something else that I was uh, doing recently because I'm playing around with queen mandibular pheromone synthetics. It's called um, Temp Queen. So it's designed to fool a colony into thinking that a queen's there. But this leads me to believe that pheromones are really strong and they're not good at identifying the pheromone of their own queen. Now maybe some will never depart from their own queen. Wherever she goes, the workers will go, everybody will go, and that's what happens when a queen swarms out and she leaves, we're gonna talk about that today because today is heavily based on swarm experiences with people, but bear with me for a second. So I took this QMP and uh, it comes in a little green noodle form and it had some really old stuff. Like it's been out there for seven weeks or more and I just left it on the railing of my way to be Academy building. Came back the next morning and it was covered in bees, the whole railing, the post, everything. So, number one, a very slight pheromone can be detected in the air and draws bees that are not from that queen's colony. How do we know? Because there's no queen. It's just a pheromone. Not only that, it's a synthetic pheromone. 
And so they picked up the whiff of that while they were foraging, coming and going. They decided, hey, I'm going to go follow that pheromone. And I'm just going to hang out in this railing because this railing smells right. And so then we get a good sized clump of bees there that would look just like a swarm. And then when I took that away and tucked it away into a Ziploc baggie and brought that back inside and put it in the refrigerator where it belongs, uh, within 15 minutes, all those bees were gone. Where'd they go? Back to the colonies they came from. So we're finding out that bees can be heavily manipulated by pheromones that cross their normal path. And likewise, a freshly mated queen puts out a pheromone. And on her way back, apparently, speculation, she attracted these drones, which dogpile onto her, her hive that she came from. And they're just zipping in there, coming, going, going in, going out. That's why a real count, okay, maybe it's exaggerated to say that there's 2,000 drones, but that's some axis been counted at a drone congregation area. So, but guess what else happens? It is reasonable to think that a newly mated queen on her virgin flight, once she's mated and is coming back, that she would also attract a bunch of other foragers in the air. They just, on a whim, get a whiff of her QMP, and then they follow her back to her hive too. So that she would actually not only get the attention of drones, which is worthless now, because drones, let's clear this up, do not mate on the ground and they do not mate inside the hive with the queen. They mate on the wing. So what are they doing? They're just following her. Uh, because when she lands, it's all over with. But where she landed, they decide to go in and uh, harass all the nurse bees there for food and to get fed. And some of them did get fed and they departed. But we also think, I also, I don't know why I'm saying we, I think that she's also attracting a bunch of random forager bees that also will join that colony now just out of the blue because i mean if they'll join a fence post or a railing and anywhere i happen to zip tie a qmp then uh, that shows me that they're easily swayed by pheromones that are not even from their own queen they can jump ship at a moment's notice lots of discussion about that which is really cool it's interesting to hear people's thoughts about different things and uh, so the QMP should not be used as a lure to get uh, a queen in a swarm to move into a hive. I want to be clear about that because that is a synthetic queen. It's a queen replacement. Therefore, it caused them to divide forces and the actual queen could actually lose this vote if she's unmated. So virgin queens don't have as much draw as a queen mandibular pheromone noodle has. How do I know that? Because when I put that on a branch next to an actual swarm with an actual queen in it, they migrated away from the queen and she actually went with them and they collected around the QMP. Then that queen tried to fly away with a bunch of bees from the same swarm in their bivouac location. They tried to fly to another location. I thought they were going and then they all turn around and they recollect on the QMP again. So whoever's making decisions in that swarm is divided on whether or not to be with QMP or a real queen, but they're pheromone driven. That's the bottom line of all of it. And they had to go and remove the QMP in order to properly hive that swarm. So if I left it with them, it would have failed. Okay, so let's jump right into our very first question today. We covered everything. This comes from Trevor. 
Oh, and that was that was his question. He was talking about QMP. He said that he would say yes. It probably followed the queen back to the hive. Also, as you said, it had been split recently. That hive had been manipulated. And the drone could take advantage of the lower number of guards on duty. Now, here's the other thing. People were thinking, why aren't the guard bees fighting off those drones? Guard bees in general, no matter what landing board drones land on, and no matter what hive the drones are from, and they're male bees, if you don't know that already, uh, they don't get stopped frequently by worker bees in a time of plenty. So when there's a lot of resources coming in, as is the case right now, they are not likely to stop drones, nor are they likely to evict the drones. So what happened? Within a couple hours of this mass of drones showing up, some of them being fed and departing, that landing board was back to normal. The following day, totally normal, no repeat. Now, I've not done that inspection, so for those of you who are new today, you might want to subscribe to the channel because I'm going to be uploading the video follow-up of that same colony because if it was a mated queen, by next week, she'll be producing eggs and uh, we'll take a look to see how much drone comb there is and things like that. But I suspect they were just random drones out in the town, got lost, smelled the pheromone of this queen and followed her back to her place and then left. But it was not, yeah, anyway. So we're going to find out more about it. You're going to want to see it because I'm going to video it and we're going to speculate more. We're just going to have thoughts about things. So that's what Trevor's question was about. Moving right along. Like I said, today, everyone's having uh, swarm issues and fun stuff like that. So the next one comes from Daniel, which comes from Ontario, Canada. Here you go. I just got started with four frame nucleus colony that I put into a 10 frame deep on May the 28th. Two weeks later, on June 10th, I inspected for the first time and did not see my queen. I saw a fair amount of open cell brood, but only a few areas with eggs. Initially, I did not think much of it because they were still building up comb on frames to give the queen more room to lay. When they're building infrastructure, by the way, that is a great sign they're staying there, that they've decided. However, I inspected again on the 15th and found my queen cells, but no queen once again. At this point, there were no brood and the egg stage should be found. I came to the conclusion that something happened to my queen and the colony was using her last batch of eggs to replace her. I consulted a local beekeeping group on Facebook and the consensus was requeen as soon as possible and remove those queen cells as letting them grow unnaturally would be risky and might set me back a month while my bee population would begin to fail. I also consulted the beekeeper who I purchased the nuke from, and he said the same thing. In the end, I purchased a new queen. It was an, important, an imported Ukrainian, and meticulously went through each frame to ensure I cut out every queen cell. Was this the right call? Okay, so when you've already talked with a bunch of people in your beekeeping group and the person that sold you the bees and everything else, for me to say that was not the right call, is not the right call. So, but we can talk about options. All the options were there and it's true. It depends on why you're keeping bees and what time of year this happens. And uh, backyard beekeeping, uh, a lot of people will say, by the way, if this is a regional uh, queen that you got that's already adapted to your local area, that is good stock. If the person that sold it to you has a very good reputation, they're probably a good source. So knowing the traits of the bee that you're going to get, the queen, because everything in that hive is eventually going to be 
from that queen. So the queen choice is really important. Now we're still early enough in the year to allow colonies to produce a new queen. And it is a risk because the queen they produce may get out, go for her virgin mating flight and uh, never make it back. There's a lot of competition for food out there and a queen bee, pretty conspicuous in the air, might become food. So you do risk losing your colony. One of the things I like to do when I get a box, now this is backyard beekeeping. I know I say that a lot, but it's because I'm not dependent upon income from what my honeybees produce. I don't sell pollen. I don't sell propolis. I don't sell bees. I don't sell honey. My wife sells some honey, but that's not the reason that we're in beekeeping. My product is bee knowledge. So the thing is, if I requeen and let them produce our own new queen. To me, that's not a huge risk. So I don't generally smush a bunch of queen cells to prevent them from making a new queen. But you know, this has already been done. The decision has been made. You got a queen and you installed it and the queen is probably going to do just fine. I'm assuming that they accepted the new queen. I like to let my bees make their own new queens. I like to do walk away splits and we've demonstrated that. Uh, Basically, walk-away splits were the method that I used to populate my observation hives that I recently made videos about, and they're doing everything exactly as planned, but we're in full risk mode right now. One of the hives, I installed a queen that I took from one of my nucleus colonies. In another observation hive, I just put in eggs and resources. So they're making their own queen cells right on cue. There are two visible through the observation hive. So that's also going to be coming up. We're going to show when they cap those cells. I'm going to show how the bees demonstrate the workers inside the hive, demonstrate a preference for one queen cell over another. And then when that queen hatches, less than a week after it's been capped, we're going to see what happens there. If she makes a flight and returns and she can start to produce eggs in that colony, we're going to know all that pretty shortly. But see, I don't mind doing that because again, I'm not depending on the productivity of the bees under my care in order to gain a profit for me. So it all depends. It's when you say it's risky, uh, it is hundred percent risk. You can end up queenless, but that's why we create resource hives that have eggs, open larvae, and we also have uh, queens in each one. So we have the option to pull eggs so we can build yet another one. But each time you do that, the cycle starts over and then you're waiting 30 days on average to see if you've got a mated queen that's productive. So 30 days down the road, we're still in the month of July, which is ahead of our late summer nectar flow. So anything that I do right now, we can still gamble with that stuff. Now, if we're doing this at the end of July, now you're into late August before you potentially get the new queen and she's productive and has is producing new eggs. Um, and now look, you're into September and October and a colony like that may be weakened or smaller. I've also been very fortunate in having very small colonies of bees, late season swarms and so on, survive winter, but I keep them in smaller boxes. So again, it's about what's your motivation for beekeeping? What do you wanna do with them? What do you need from your bees? What if they fail? So if you have multiple queen cells, you can divide them and uh, put one in a nucleus colony and uh, keep the other one in the original hive. And then they'll both produce queens at the same time. Those queens will not fight because now they're in separate hives. They'll both do mating flights. 
One of them might be successful, one of them might not be, and then you can take the successful one and install it back in the original hive. If they're both successful, and they both may, and they both come back, and they're both productive, you've got two colonies. You can even uh, join those colonies together later or keep independent colonies. I don't think it's too late in the year. But as far as did you make the right call, that is an open-ended question because it's a matter of what you want to get out of them. And I will say that the quickest way to recover a colony is to get a mated queen and install her as soon as you know that they're queenless. Now, the risk is that you've missed a queen cell in there somewhere. And if they swarm, this is a story that we hear frequently too. Somebody bought a queen, paid a lot of money for her, installed her in a hive, she got productive, and they swarmed. Which means somebody overlooked a queen cell that was already there during their queenless period. Which locks me into what was the purpose of QMP, that synthetic temp queen. People put that in there while they're waiting for the new queen to come in so the others don't produce a replacement queen. But they don't do that when they've already started queen cells. It's complicated, I know. Question number three, this is from Claire. In Ireland, I'm based in Ireland and have a question about swarms. See, another swarm question. I'm a beginner beekeeper and have done a beginner's course. I had some swarm traps up in my mom's garden. One nuke, which probably is too small, and one brood box size. There had been scout activity for the past few weeks, and I went to check on them yesterday because we had good weather. While I was there, the scouts were still around with boxes, around both boxes, and then a swarm arrived in the afternoon. But bees went into both boxes, so into the nucleus colony and also into a standard bee box. And I wasn't expecting that. And the boxes were about 20 feet apart. One about five feet off the ground in a tree and the other up on a flat roof. My question is, because they arrived together in a swarm, are they from one colony slant hive, even though they went into two separate boxes or from two colonies and swarmed together? So we'll answer that part right there. They could be from the same colony if these are virgin queens. So sometimes multiples hatch at the same time and you get what's called after swarms. Multiple swarms can happen at the same time. One large swarm can happen with multiple queens in it and sometimes they divide themselves even on the same tree branch when they're bivouacking. But these are moving into their final destination. So the good news is you've got a queen in each box because they wouldn't split up and ignore the queen and I'll go to a box without her. So you've got a queen in each box, you've got two swarms. So the origin of those might not be very important. One of the things that's not mentioned here is how many bees, you know, like were, were they really full with these big swarms, were they several pounds? Because that also kind of indicates whether or not your queen is mated or if she's a virgin queen that just happened to produce an after swarm and a smaller cluster goes after her. So the good news is I think you're, you're going to have some fun either way, but you're going to be taking them far away. So it says that I live a 45-minute drive. So anyway, how long is it okay to leave them in the swarm traps before I move them? My recommendation is always to get them out of the swarm boxes as soon as possible and hive them up in their final apiary as soon as possible. That's because we don't want them to set up house in that swarm box and start to build infrastructure and then the foragers get used to that being their actual location. And it's also why I suggest, based on the fact also that we got two swarms here, 
When you remove that swarm box with your new bees, put another one in its place just in case another swarm happens even after that. I don't know how many bees you want. We're at a perfect time of year. Swarm in May, these are the sayings, worth a load of hay. Swarm in June, worth a silver spoon. Swarm in July, let them fly. Now, of course, that doesn't assign itself to the entire world or across even the United States because different regions have different prime times for swarming and those are natural rhythms from the environment. So, take them out, hive them up. That's what I would do, you have free bees, don't let them set up there. And I'm not sure it says here that you live 45 minute drive, but should you try to remove them? In other words, are you taking them 45 minutes away? I don't know. So the good news is because this was time critical for Claire, I already responded through email, so she's already knows what my recommendation was, and that is to get them as soon as possible, hive them up as soon as possible, and they could possibly be from the same hive, um, arriving together at the same time at another location. Scouts frequently visit the same potential nesting site for the bees, and uh, so it's not unusual for them to come from other colonies. So this really plays, if they're after swarms from the same colony, usually one of them is nice and big and the next one is much smaller. So lots of information we could get there that we don't have. And it says there are some frames of foundation and some frames with starter strips, but neither box is full of frames. That's fine. In fact, when you're setting up a swarm trap, I recommend not putting in capped honey and food resources and things that would otherwise cause them just to rob it out. But if you've got drawn frames, the, the space doesn't have to be full of frames. Another reason why you want to transfer them as soon as possible, because it's not full of frames, therefore they have a tendency to attach their comb right to the inner cover of your box rather than the frames themselves. So you want to get on them as soon as possible. <clears throat> and that's pretty much it. Think you're good and I told her yeah get them now go leave work take the day off I will sign the note if you need to get off work early to go and get bees question number four comes from Andrew New Hudson Michigan <clears throat> I performed a split a couple of weeks ago and the hive that ended up queenless had a virgin queen emerge on either Tuesday the 14th or Wednesday the 15th on Sunday the 19th a lot of activity started around that hive a little afternoon. Not quite swarming levels, but a lot of bees in the air. A large number of bees formed on the front of the hive, and they appeared to be fanning Nasanoff pheromone, like when I installed a package, not simply moving air, like when a flow is on or when it's hot. They repeated this behavior on Monday the 20th. Do you know why bees would behave this way? Well, and we could describe that posture a little bit. When people are looking at bees on the landing board and they're fanning to vent or to move air because when they're moving air, they line up one after another, even inside the hive, and they draft off one another and that's how they move air out. And when they do that, their head's down, they're gripping, they're fanning, and their abdomen is straight or slightly down. Now, when they're fanning to spread pheromones so that people who don't understand what the Nazanoff gland is, their abdomen, instead of being straight or angled down, actually arches up and right at the very end of their abdomen, you'll see an opening. And uh, that is where they're spreading the pheromone that unites that colony of bees. 
Generally, that's the queen's pheromone. But remember, at the beginning of today, I was talking about the queen mandibular pheromone, the synthetic temp queen. Uh, they were grabbing onto that and spreading that gland as fast as they could. They're actually licking that. Uh, and so taking that on board as their pheromone. So it's interesting. You can't always trust what the cause of that is. But uh, I don't have an answer for why all the activity. Sometimes it's uh, orientation flights. Maybe there's been, you know, bees that are finally hatching out from before. They're emerging from capped pupa cells. And they could all be, if they're doing figure eights in front of the hive, and then they're going back into it, those are generally orientation flights, and they could do that in groups. Uh, if they're doing corkscrew flights up and away, then that's a, a new forager that's going out, and they're just registering the landscape. Specifically, they're registering the horizon features as they go out. And then the other part is flying out staring at the front of the hive, just going back and forth, staring at the front of the hive, landing, taking off again, staring at the front of the hive, back and forth without the figure eight, without the orientation. That means they're looking at a queen that they expect to emerge to do um, a swarm. So you could have possibly an unknown queen that's about to fly out of there, or maybe even did fly out. We don't know unless we watch them all the time. And these are just guesses on my part. But I was, if I were observing a bunch of bee behavior, those would be the things I would be looking for. And then, of course, the worst thing could be robbing. You know, another reason that bees would be coming, but that's much more distinctive. Uh, there would be fighting at the landing board, and there would be a bunch of detritus on the landing board, little bits and pieces of, um, like wax, like their feet were dirty, and they, they trample up the entrance and start to dirty it up, so... There are too many possibilities to repeat this on the 20th. And uh, do you know why the bees would behave this way? Those are just some guesses that I have. Hopefully you're not about to lose a queen out of there. Because the split was performed a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's too early. Well, if it's in the third week, you could have produced a replacement queen already. And now, yeah. You're in the zone if one of them came early, but that's way young for a queen if it happened because of the split. So I think something else is going on. Generally too early. Here's another complicated one. Question number five. Jason from Elk River. I want to say Maine. All right. So anyway, during a hive inspection, I noticed several swarm cells. Unfortunately, damaged a few during the inspection, but there were still several that were undamaged. I was able to locate the existing queen. So I pulled her and two frames of brood and added her to the frames to a five frame nucleus in an attempt to keep my existing hive from swarming. Okay, so depending on the swarm cells, how big they are and whether they're near being capped or already are capped, you could be too late on stopping swarming. So when you find queen, swells in, queen cells in development, fully structured, and the bees are attending to them, you are likely to have a swarm. So he did the right thing. He took the queen out, put her in another hive. So we'll call the original hive, hive one. The new nucleus hive, where the two frames of resources were provided with the queen, we will call hive two. So that's the queen and the brood. So... 
And uh, let's see, I have to keep them from swarming. Today, June the 22nd, despite the split, they swarmed. And uh, June 22nd? Anyway, I was able to catch that swarm and install them in another nuke as well. So now we have the original hive, the nuke with the queen in it, and frames of resources. And now we have a third hive, which now has the swarm that was put in there. And uh, thanks for your advice. I had built two nukes. It says, I must have, they must have swarmed with the new queen since I had already split with the existing queen. So now what do I do? Do I add the original queen back to her original hive? Is there now another queen in there? And the hive swarmed with an unmated queen? What's the best thing to do here? I don't know if it's the best thing to do here, but I can give you lots of options because now we have three boxes, two with queens for sure. One has a mated laying queen, so that's the first split that you did. And the next one was the swarm you collected. Good job, hive them up in a nucleus, good job. And uh, that likely still has to complete a mating flight. So that one is still, let's call that at risk. Also, why would they swarm? They're not gonna swarm unless they're producing a replacement queen also in the original hive. So we have to keep an eye on them. So they swarmed out, there may not be another swarm. They may just produce a replacement queen. So give them time because we don't want to mess with them too much. Go one week and I would inspect the original hive to look for evidence of the queen that would have come out. And uh, she could be on a mating flight within the next couple of weeks. And so we keep the hive number two with the original queen in it. That's your insurance policy. Hive number three, the swarm, that's another insurance policy. And then we just wait and see what that first original hive does and you could go back to the original hive if you wanted to and uh, smash all the existing queen cells but i think that's risky too because we don't even know if hive number three your captured swarm if she's going to complete a mating flight because we're going to make an assumption that that is an unmated queen that she is an after swarm so we have three to watch and then the ones that end up queenless, I would recombine those with whichever, whichever of these colonies looks the strongest. Uh, we also don't know the history of the queen that you pulled out originally. So I don't know um, how long she's been with you. Is, she, is it a new queen this year? So whichever of colony two or three, the split that you made with the original queen or the swarm that you collected, I would wait to see which one is the most promising and shows the most production. And if one of them ends up queenless, we know two likely won't end up queenless, but I have three could, and then we would recombine them with the original colony and just fortify them. And then if they're all strong, congratulations, you have three hives of bees. So I would just watch them and uh, look for eggs and see what they're doing. And then if one ends up queenless, good to go. And the reason this reintroduction and combining of these colonies will be very easy is because they're so closely genetically related. They've all come from one another. They're very accommodating. By then you would be putting them back with their own brood and everything. But uh, hive number three, the installed swarm, may not produce eggs or brood unless she gets mated and returns successfully. So she could just be a resource for your queen that's been pulled away with just two frames, or you can restore them 
to hive one. Those are your options. Wait to see how they do, see how they perform. We need more history on these original hives. How old's that queen? How long have you had that hive? Things like that. Question number six comes from Dan from Goldendale, Washington. My question is about the B Smart products, specifically the insulated cover and the insulated top. I have added these to my to three of my hives this spring. What I'm wondering is if I should remove the insulation in the inner cover or leave it in place all year. Okay, the B Smart. If you if you buy that combination of the insulated inner cover, <clears throat> which I have right here, that's the insulated inner cover. This is the insulated piece, and what's being talked about here is whether or not this insulated part should be removed for summer. I say no, keep it, keep it right there. Keep it insulated summer and winter because it benefits you all seasons. But you also refer to the top cover, the plastic Beastmart Designs Ultimate Hive cover as an insulated cover. It really is not an insulated cover. There's an outer plastic layer to it. Uh, there's an airspace, and then there's an inner layer to it, and uh, that's it. So there's no insulation other than dead airspace. So that may have low insulating properties. But uh, I recommend, if that's your configuration and it worked for winter, also leave it on for summer because summer heat beating down on top of a hive, transmitting that heat to the inside is just as challenging for the bees often, depending on where you live, as the winter cold can be, and we want to retain heat. We also want to retain their ability to cool the space, which they do with water in the summertime when these high heat days come along. So yes, leave the insulated inner cover on as I'm doing year round. By the way, those insulated inner covers, fantastic. That was question number six. All of my colonies that had those on did really well and every Langstroth style hive that I have will have an insulated inner cover on it henceforth, and they do right now as well. Question number seven comes from Devin from Dundee, Oregon. I have had bees for one year now and the goatskin gloves. They're in need of a good cleaning. What do you use to clean propolis, propolis and honey off of goatskin gloves? Okay, <clears throat> this has come up in the past. And I guess you have to ask, what do you need to clean from your goat skin gloves. This is just cosmetic. Are they getting so sticky that there's so much propolis on it that you just can't even do your work because they just stick and grab onto everything? Uh, so first of all, for those who are listening, goat skin gloves perform better with your beehives than rawhide. So if you've got cowhide gloves, real leather gloves, they smell like cows, they smell like leather, it's a smell everybody knows, uh, those are much more annoying to the bees and they can solicit stings. Goatskin gloves are a little thinner, a little less protection, but they offer greater dexterity. They fit your hands better and uh, don't get the attention of your bees in a negative way. So they're going to get dirty over time. So the question is, why do we want to clean them? If it's a function thing, then uh, there's some things we can do to clean those up. Uh, if it's uh, just cosmetic, you're never going to get them to look. Most goatskin gloves are like a creamy white color, an off-white color, sometimes a light gray. Um, if the function isn't impeded at all, I wouldn't do anything. One of the reasons you might want to clean them up, though, is 
when you get bee stings on your hands through the gloves because they leave that alarm pheromone on there. And if you're going hive to hive, this is why I recommend you have several pairs of gloves, by the way. If you get into one hive, they're a little hot and you see a bunch of stingers on the gloves, retire those gloves for today, put another set on and move on to the rest of the hives. Otherwise, you're going to continue to get uh, an unwelcome response from the guard bees that, that register that pheromone. We know that bees are heavily pheromone based. So this is my procedure. I'm going to read it off to you. Uh, you mentioned honey on here. Rinse the gloves in cold, fresh water. Keep them on your hands and just wash off your hands with water. That gets the honey off right away. So that's the easy part. And also, I keep these. These are 100% cotton rags. I think these are what bartenders use. I get them from Amazon and they're super cheap and you get them in bundles and I have them in the garage. I have them in the bee shed. I have them everywhere. I'm going to be keeping bees. And what you can do is heat your hand up with a heat gun and then use this. This has propolis on it and you wipe the gloves off once you get them hot with the heat gun. And that will collect a bunch of it off. It's amazing how much propolis comes off. That stuff is tough. And keep in mind, the propolis is in there to seal the hive, to protect it from moisture and condensation buildup in the wood where bacteria would form. So it's antibacterial and it provides a health protective layer for the hive. And it's designed to prevent moisture from going through it. It comes from tree resin. So it's kind of set up to be against your ability to dissolve it and clean it away. So some people use isopropanol, alcohol, stuff like that. So heat, the next step, wipe everything down. If that doesn't satisfy what you want to do, then I use, I'm also an artist, so I have oil paint, uh, I have oil soap, I have uh, stuff that's designed to clean paint out of the bristles of brushes. So that's the next thing. A lot of it is uh, low in chemical residue. So there are things like terpenoid, but you don't want to use that on gloves that are later going to be used in your beehive. So you want to get the hand soaps that are designed to be friendly to people's hands, but will dissolve away linseed-based oil paints and things like that. Those work. So that's the next thing I do. And I keep the gloves right on and I do the whole thing. And then the next step is I use pumice soap. It's kind of like lava. So this is what you might find if you were a mechanic and you have to get grease and grime off of your hands. Pumice soap, I use that again right on the goat skin gloves and rub that down and clean that off. And then I rinse that again and the final rinse is Dawn Ultra. Free and clear, oh, I just happen to have some. Dawn Ultra Pure Essentials. This is what I use. That's your final cleanse. So again, it's just like you're scrubbing your hands, like you're getting ready for surgery with your gloves on. Clean that all off. Dawn Essentials will wipe away everything else. This is designed to dissolve away grease and lipids. So this is good. It's not going to make your gloves look like new. Then your gloves go outside in the sun. And while they're still damp. So not completely dry. Just a little bit damp. Never, by the way, run your gloves, your leather gloves in hot water. Always use cold water. But as they're drying out, then you put them back on and you form them to your hands. So, and then what's the final thing once they're dry? What do you think I'm going to say? I don't know how old this is. This stuff lasts forever. It's saddle soap. 
those of you who have had horses, if you've had to preserve your tack, if you've had to rub down the saddles and everything else, this is the stuff that will condition the leather, or in this case, goat skin. Same thing. You open it up, you smear it onto your gloves while they're in your hands, and use that as your final coat. And hey, Fred, do the bees hate the smell of saddle soap? No, they don't seem to care at all. And so what you're doing is you're masking, again, any potential for there to be a threat pheromone, an alarm pheromone on your gloves. You want to get that out of there. And that you'll know pretty quickly whether or not your bees care or not. But the saddle soap will restore any of the oils and flexibility to the gloves. Your dexterity is maximum and everything else. But I highly recommend nitrile gloves because you can just pull them off and throw them away afterwards. Or your bare hands because your bare hands clean up. And if you need to clean up your bare hands... Uh, same thing, lava soap and stuff like that. So, and you know, if you're an artist and you need brush cleaning soaps anyway, look for the ones that are good for your hands and your skin and also will take off the oil residues. If it'll clean up a dried up paintbrush, it'll clean up your gloves. Your gloves will not look like new. So it's just, if this is just about how they're looking, I wouldn't even bother. But if it's, if they're getting too stiff and everything else, saddle soap, if they're getting too sticky, follow that procedure and I think you'll be good to go. Question number eight, moving on to Daniel from uh, Acton, Massachusetts. Should I feed all summer with the intention of making as much comb as possible for next year? Is there any reason to stop feeding given that I most likely won't get a honey crop this year? Though I would love to. Thanks. Okay. Now that final stinger there, though I would love to get a honey crop. These are the only bees I feed. Brand new installed swarm. In fact, this year I didn't even feed the swarms. Uh, the installs that I did feed were in the observation hives. Uh, and that's because I obviously want them to build up so we can observe what they're doing. Now, nothing is ever going to be taking off of those observation hives. I'm not taking honey off. I'm not feeding. I'm not uh, deriving anything from them. So the other thing is uh, my horizontal hive, my lands hive, not fed. The hives that are not fed, this is interesting. Uh, and keep in mind, I'm in an area where we don't have a heavy dearth. So those are considerations that you have to make as well. And we fall back to what I mentioned earlier. Why are you keeping bees? What do you need from your bees? If you're going to sell any products that are made from your beehives, I recommend not feeding. So because here where I am, the resources are coming in, the cells, when you do inspections, what do you find? So in other words, if they're getting plenty of nectar and they're filling those cells with nectar and you're not feeding yet, then they're demonstrating that they have enough feed and resources. So I would not recommend feeding unless like you've you know, just installed a package of bees or something and you have two weeks of nothing but cold weather and rain coming, then that's definitely going to help bridge that period. So some people like to feed through dearth periods. Uh, and so those are judgments based on where you live. Now, how do you find out if you're a brand new beekeeper if where you're living even has a dearth or has a period where you might have to provide some kind of surplus resource to keep your colony strong enough during those periods. But keep in mind, if you're putting on sugar syrup or you're open feeding that stuff, it is going to likely get into your honey stores and it is going to impact resources from that hive. So you have to feed if you feed 
inside the targeted hive only. And I also don't like entrance feeders that could encourage robbing from a newly installed colony. I like to have hive top feeders on the inner cover. And like that insulated inner cover has a hole in the middle and you can put uh, any style hive top feeder up there and they can get up there and access that much reduces the chance of robbing. So to find out, go to Beescape, B-E-E-S-C-A-P-E dot O-R-G dot org and put in your address and see what kind of resources are in your area and what kind of challenges there are. So if you don't have a dearth and you've got resources through the year, I would not feed them. After they're established and started and you see lots of foraging coming and you do an inspection and things look good, I would stop feeding. What they get from the flowers is going to be better than what we can provide for them. Question number nine comes from Robin from Lancaster, Ohio. I have four hives that I would like to treat for mites midsummer using oxalic acid vaporization. In order to do that, I understand that I need to have a brood break. Now, this is the same question that Ross Millard asked as well. So I'm going to answer two with one here. <clears throat> my plan is to, pull, to put all my queens in cages, except for one that needs to be replaced, in their hives for 15 days. Hives are just deep brood boxes with medium supers. After 15 days, I'll release the queen, and then wait a total of 23 days from when the queen is caged to do an OAV treatment. I think that will give me no capped brood, so that OAV can be effective. I would do another OAV in early winter when they are again mostly broodless. I'm interested in your opinion on this method for mite treatment. Okay, so the queen cage. That follows a lot of different forms. Just happened, I wrote up a thing just for Robin and Ross here. This is my, If you, I don't know if you can read this. So let's put that right there. If anybody wants to get a screenshot of my procedure and we'll show that, but I'm gonna run it down for you. Let's say July's coming up, 1st of July. What's the queen cage look like, first of all? <clears throat> this is what I personally would use. I don't like the little push-on 4x4 queen cages and things like that. That's too tiny, it's too small, and the queen can't lay enough in there. I also recommend that the frame be, it has to be drawn out with comb. Why not take this opportunity to draw a bunch of varroa mites in and kill those rascals? While we're at it, so if you can get drone comb, that's what the green foundation is. If you don't have it, fine. Use regular standard brood comb. And uh, your queen will be in this queen cage, and this is up against the side of your box. For me, it's the eastern side of the box, if my landing board's facing south. Now, the other ripoff here is, I don't really mean ripoff, but uh, Better Bee has a better queen cage than this. So I bought this one from Blue Sky Bee Supply, who quickly stopped selling them, by the way. But that's the premise. We get the queen. She goes on this frame. This cage goes around her because it's a queen excluder. Worker bees, nurse bees can go through this. They can take care of the queen. She's going to start laying on this frame. So the rest of your hive, if it's a 10 frame, then you've got nine available frames. If it's an eight, you've got seven available frames. And in this case, we've got the deep plus a medium above it. Okay, so you've got your frame in there, you put your queen in there, and you did it July 1st. 
Now, before we go any further, this will impact your production. So, that's why a lot of people would rather treat than isolate the queen. So this is considered kind of a natural method to kick off a brood break at a time of year when she may not normally do that. So July 1st, you cage the queen. That also means that on the day that you moved her into that cage, that she would have been laying right up until the time that you disrupted her. And if you want to make it easy on yourself, you find the frame that the queen is on where she's actively laying and you just move that whole frame right to the end and put your cage around it. That way you don't have to handle the queen or anything else. That's already a brood frame and she's going to be working on that. The brood that hatches in there can pass right through the queen uh, cage because they're small enough they get through. The only things that can't get out if you put that there will be drone. So if you've got capped drone cells or drones already in production and you put them in there, they'll be stuck in there. They can't get out. So things to think about. So then we've caged the queen on the 1st of July. That means the last eggs that have been produced out in the hive are on the 1st of July. So now we jump to July 10th, which is a Sunday. The first is Friday, next Friday, as a matter of fact. Now, on the 10th, so that means all the recently laid eggs would be capped brood. Okay. So now, and the queen continues to lay, and because she's laying on that frame, she's still releasing the pheromone, there's brood in there, and as far as the rest of this colony is concerned, they're queen right. There's no risk of them producing a replacement queen. If you put that queen in a tiny cage, and there's only a little brood there, then the brood production is so down, the queen actually may pull back on her productivity and it may reduce the pheromone from the queen, which could weaken that pheromone in the rest of the hive if it's big in multiple boxes. So things to think about, the big frames, the big traps are better. Now, so on July 10th, all the recent eggs will now be capped. July 14th, that's a Thursday. That's the day that you would pull this cage off of the queen frame and you'll take that whole frame out. Guess where it goes? In the freezer. Because remember, any capped brood in there, those would be, uh, mites would be in there. So that gets put in the freezer. Your queen is released and she starts laying again. Now we jump forward to July the 22nd. That's when you can do your oxalic acid vaporization because the queen, starting on July the 14th, she would have, in theory, started laying eggs again throughout the hive somewhere. Uh, we know that they're not going to be capped until up to the ninth day, so we have a window of opportunity there. There is some fuzzy room here in this schedule. So on July the 22nd is when you give your oxalic acid vaporization treatment, and that's when it's proven to have up to 96% efficacy against all phoretic mites. There would be no mites under capped brood at that time. Therefore, you would do a major wipeout on those mites. Also, if you can, you want to do a mite drop count. See what the impact was. See what's going on. So, and that is something that you can do for any of your colonies that have high mite loads. If uh, you've been waiting and doing mite counts on several of your colonies, I would do them all at the same time with this method. Uh, and again, Better Bee has a better, I think it's called the queen trap. I don't know if it's called the queen cage, but they have it better than mine because it can be anywhere in your frames because it closes the frame completely. Mine has to be up against the side of the hive 
I kind of like the idea of one in the middle better. So, and that creates a false brood break, much as you would have here at the end of November, beginning of December, where brood is at its smallest, therefore OAV is at its maximum. And now the argument is, of course, that you've lost all that productivity from that queen throughout that entire time, but here's my argument. Not argument, it's a discussion. So we know that when uh, we collect a swarm, and there's been a lot of discussion about swarm collection here today. So we know that when we've got a swarm, we have a window of opportunity to treat the swarm also with oxalic acid vaporization before it gets to the point where in the new hive, they cap any brood because oxalic acid does not work through capping. So we have nine days, not even, let's do it on the eighth day. If you've got a newly hived swarm, treat them on the eighth day. Why not treat right away, Fred? Because remember they can abscond. We want them to invest in that new location. We want that introduction to be as carefree and stress-free as possible for those bees and then hit them with OAV just before they would cap any brood. See, so you already have a break right there. That's why people that do multiple swarms that allow their bees to swarm, that um, have a lot of reproduction going on the hive, doing a lot of splits and things like that, they have a great opportunity to control the Varroa destructor mite. And then the thing is that after those mites are gone, what else is, is reduced? The impact on the bees, the impact on the nurse bees that Varrodestructor mites feed on, the impact on developing larvae that the Varrodestructor mites feed on is greatly reduced. Now we're getting rid of that ahead of the late season nectar flow, which is a time of rapid increase for the bees. So by the end of July, we're kicking off a whole new cycle of bees for the August and September nectar flow. And so I think the recovery would be much faster and bees relieved of a mite load. See what I'm saying? So it could actually be better than if you never did this and you just did normal treatments that have lower efficacy and uh, then you ended up with bees that are still carrying mite disease. I don't know, so there might be a balance there. Food for thought, that's just my suggestion. And use the big full frame style so the bee has access to both sides of that because that's, you know, let the queen continue to lay and do her thing and keep the pheromones strong in the hive. Question number 10. This is from Dustin. Oh, I can't even say that. Mocha Lumni Hill, California. Caught a swarm and could not. Okay, this is an interesting one because it's something that a lot of people might have experienced. I caught a swarm and could not get them into the box at first. I was able to get them to march into a nuke box that had a few old frames in it. They were all bearded on the outside the next morning, almost no bees at all in the box. I tried shaking them all into a hive box, thinking they might want more space. Again, they all came out and bearded on the bottom of the hive. I tried putting a frame of brood into the box and again gathered and shook the bees into the box. They again came out and clustered under the hive box. I left them alone. They stayed in that cluster for three days and then they were all gone one morning. Is that not frustrating? So I could not find the queen. 
or I could have trapped her in the box. Is there something I did wrong? Why would they not accept the good homes I was providing? The first swarm I collected stayed right in the nuke and then stayed in the box. I put them in the next day. So I don't know if pheromones were being used in that, if there's swarm commander, if there's lemongrass, if there's, you know, just propolis and bits of wax and things to entice them in there. There's a reason that they ignore the box. Was there venting on the top? Was there a top entrance? Was there a single entrance? There are a lot of configurations, but let's go past all that. Now, what I'm about to tell you is monkeying with the bees, you know? So, um, for me, if they take off, they take off. So if I get them to move into a hive, usually if you can get them in there and put their own scent in there, that's enough to incentivize the rest of them to go in because the queen is in that cluster somewhere. And unless you win that queen over and she goes in, they're not going. And that's why even though they all went in and looked around and acted like they were interested in it, if the queen didn't go in, they came back out and joined the queen and now they're on the outside. I've even seen bees block the entrance and keep other bees from going in and even exploring the cavity once it's been rejected. So let's say that you want to make sure that your bees are going to stay in there. I'm going to get my model hive for this. Here's the bottom board of your standard Langstroth hive. This could be 8 or a 10 frame box. Makes no difference. Get a couple of choices. One is there's a queen excluder entrance guard. If you shook all your bees into just the bottom box, which is what a lot of people do. So you pulled some frames, you shook all your bees in here and you put your inner cover on it. No top vent, no top entrance. And then you put your outer cover on that. And then you put your queen excluder right on the front. So once the queen is in, she can't get out no matter what they do. So even if the bees try to move out, the queen can't move out with them. And then you go, but Fred, I don't have one of these. What could I do then? I'm glad you asked. So now we've got the deep box. It's on the solid bottom board. You've got your entrance reducer on. By the way, bees care about the entrance size to a hive. If that entrance bottom board is wide open, sometimes they'll reject it because they don't feel confident that they can defend it. If they feel they're in a box that's not defensible, sometimes they'll reject it and they'll leave. So you have to have an entrance reducer on there. And when you're installing a new swarm, set it on the small entrance, what some people call the winter entrance. So anyway, what could I put up here? I have this box. I have a regular queen excluder right there. Put that on that bottom deep box. Then a second deep box. But Fred, that's too big for a swarm. I know. Remember, they're not choosing this box. You're dumping them in it because you collected the swarm. So now we have two deep boxes. We have a queen excluder. The only thing that can go in and out of this hive would be workers. We pull these frames up above to make room just so you can dump them in there. You collected the swarm. You dump them all in there. And then really quick, before that queen can reject you, you put your inner cover on here. And we want to entice them to stick around, right? So you put your round feeder or whatever on top of here. We want to give them syrup and stuff, resources. 
And then we want to put that outer cover on here. No top vent, no top exit, no top entrance, no way for them to escape up here. Now, if the queen was in that swarm cluster that you dumped in there, and it's likely that she is, you're going to see them on the landing board fanning the Nasanoff gland. So you know she's in there. Where is she? She's in this upper box. Can she get out? No, there's a queen excluder, unless this is a virgin queen and she's little and she's skinny and she goes right through your queen excluder. There's a risk. We're monkeying with them, but you were going to lose them anyway. That's what I'm saying. So now they're in the top box. How long do you keep them here? Seven days. Keep them there seven days and then you can do your inspection. You open it up and you look in here and you kind of pull your cover off. Maybe light smoke if you need it. You might not need any if you're super careful and you don't bother them. And you pull up some frames and you see, oh, look, they're, they're making comb on these frames. They've committed themselves. Ah, the queen started laying. So the queen is up here. They started with this. So now we can lift this box up, pull the queen excluder out, get rid of the bottom box altogether. And if they have worked any of the frames in the bottom box, you take them out. Any frames that have beeswax on them that they put there, you replace them with empty frames up here. And then you put this frame with the queen and everybody else right on this bottom box. Nothing has changed. The entrance is the same. They've gotten used to their um, entrance location. They're taking care of the queen. They've invested in infrastructure. She's laid some eggs. And then the inner cover goes back on. And this is an example of bees that you would feed. We want them to stick around. That's a newly installed swarm. We want them to have resources. And there, you just outsmarted them. But uh, you did keep the queen against her will. So you meddled with everything they wanted to do. And you made them move in with you until they had Stockholm Syndrome and wanted to stay with you. And that's when you can take away your queen excluder. And now you have your hive of bees. What do you think of that? Mm-hmm. That works. Now, Fred, have you really done that? Did you really put bees through that? No, I haven't. I just thought it would work. I mean, I think it sounds good to me. Does it sound good to you? I haven't done it, but if I had a really stubborn cluster of bees and they were looking like they weren't even going to go in on their own and I really had to control their world and I wanted to put them in somewhere that they couldn't get out of and I wanted to control that queen, uh, I would do that. So, I'd keep them in there. That way they would never get away. So that's fun. Let's see. And if they gather in the bottom box, when you put that queen excluder on, you wasted your time. But if you gather in the bottom box, get these too. These are from Better Bee. I have several of them. And they can keep queens in. When have I ever used it? Never. Never had to. They stayed. I've never felt like I really needed to restrict uh, the movement of a queen before. They kind of, they kind of do what, uh, what I want them to. What can I say? I don't know what goes on. Question number 11 comes from Emma from Chorley, Lancashire, England. Let's see, I've been pondering over swarms. Everybody is talking about swarms right now. I've been pondering over swarms as I have one that I'm struggling with. The swarm was in the tree for at least five days before capture. What I'd like to know is how they manage, due to nurse bees, don't fly, so they don't take any of them with them. Wax glands only last so long, and it's house bees that produce it. 
when they don't go with them, with the queen, and when the queen lays, who tends the eggs and larvae as no nurse bees in a swarm? Do the swarm bees revert back to do other jobs, or do nurse bees actually go with the swarm when it leaves? Thanks for considering my question. Well, thanks for the question, because you already answered your own question. Do they re revert back to their old jobs uh, when nurse bees don't go? And it depends on the age of the nurse bee. So for those of you who are wondering, there is a flow of work, a division of labor. They're use social insects and they can do multitasks. That's why there need to be so many of them. They are social and therefore their division of labor allows them to succeed in environments that they otherwise couldn't succeed in. Honeybees cannot live alone, period. They depend on one another. So they start off with these first jobs. They're cell cleaners when they hatch out and they're cleaning out the cells after people say they clean the cells after themselves when they hatch out, if it's a worker bee. I have actually seen the workers hatch out and they scoot off right away, but another nurse bee gets right in there and starts cleaning. And then the second job that they have is capping brood. So when the brood gets past its ninth day, developing larvae gets to that ninth day, they're the ones that make that wax cap on there. And the wax cap over brood is gas permeable. So there's some air movement through it. So that's interesting too. And then the next job after that is attending to the brood. So those are the ones that are feeding or providing nourishment for the brood. And I'm telling you that because bees that are under 10 days old, and these are averages, are house bees. They're hive bees. They don't actually get outside yet because during this whole process, their metabolism is changing, okay? So their hormone levels are changing. And then as they progress through, they go to advanced jobs like packing pollen is near the end. They comb construct. So these are wax producers, but a wax producing bee is a pretty old bee. Now there are times when I've looked at a cluster of bees that are in swarm mode that are bivouacked and I have seen wax scales on their abdomens. So I know that their wax glands are producing wax and those bees were able to fly out. They're much older in a lot of cases. So they actually are going with them ready to make wax. And that's why sometimes, even when they're only on a branch for a couple of days, uh, you'll see a little teardrop-shaped comb start to be built there if they're stuck for a long time. So the question is, nurse bees, the youngest nurse bees that are feeding the young and doing these jobs that we talked about, cell cleaning, capping brood, tending brood, attending to the queen, and then they receive nectar from the foraging bees as they come in. Okay, they... You're right, they're not tough enough, they're not strong enough, they can't be guard bees, they can't stand and fight, which is why once something gets on the brood frame, it's a free-for-all, because those nurse bees can't fight them off. They're just not tough bees. So, but do they revert back to these in-hive chores once the queen starts to lay in a new location? The answer is yes, they do. So even foraging bees, when they get the stimulus from a freshly hatched egg, that's been laid by that queen and the larvae are present and there aren't nurse bees which are there putting off their own pheromone that lets the rest of the hive know that things are good, that things are healthy. There are older bees that revert back to being nurse bees. So they do and it works. Likewise, when you have a colony where bees are 
you've just taken a bunch of bees apart. You shook a bunch of nurse bees into a box because you're making a split and you want a bunch of nurse bees in there. So you shake them in there and we know that foraging bees fly out. They know where they live, especially if we're nearby where you took them from. The foraging bees tend to go back to the original hive. And so now we have a hive full of nurse bees and of course the queen that we took with them. You'll notice that often when you do that, there's no landing board activity for several days in some cases. And that's because the nurse bees are in there. They're not strong foragers. And so we'll see much reduced activity, if any, on the landing board right away. And people will wonder often, are they even in there? And then when you listen close, you hear that little hum and you know they're in there all right, but now the opposite has to happen. In other words, where when you've hived a swarm, we have older bees that are reverting back to some of the in-house, in-hive jobs. That labor has to be satisfied. Those jobs have to be satisfied, so they change hormonally. So then, in the other direction, when we have nothing but nurse bees, they actually accelerate their movement through these positions through the hive until they're outside foraging out of necessity. So then these, these bees burn themselves out much quicker. In fact, they start to skip jobs. In other words, not every bee becomes a comb builder. She might go right out and be a ventilating builder or a ventilating bee, or she might start guarding the hive, which by the way, it's gonna take a while for a colony like that to build their defenses, which is another reason why when you're setting up a new colony with nurse bees, entrance feeders and things like that that could draw stronger, more capable foragers in they could just, they'll just steamroll your nurse bees as far as guarding goes. So, and then if they get inside, they'll just rob everything. So that's why I keep the entrances small when you establish a new colony, but it goes both ways. Young bees move to advanced positions too soon. Older bees revert back to their original uh, jobs inside the hive. So that is it for today. That was question number 11. So the only fluff that I have for today to talk about um, is that Ernst seeds, they produce uh, a bunch of native pollinator sources and they're in the state of Pennsylvania. And Saturday, they're having an open house and uh, there's gonna be a bunch of beekeepers there. So if you look up Ernst seeds, I'll put a link to them. They're having a big field day. They're gonna have tours of, uh, of course, all the plants that they grow. They're gonna talk about where they're headed, what they're doing, and uh, you can talk with a bunch of beekeepers there. So I'll put a link so you can find out more about that. That's happening tomorrow. I know that's a short fuse, but that's my shout out for today. Uh, a company that provides uh, plants for pollinators that we can all access online. They happen to be known across the country. They just happen to be not too far away from where I am here, like an hour away, I think. Something like that. So that's my shout out for today. I hope you learned something today and maybe you're thinking about some creative ways to manage and entice swarms and how to handle them once you have them. And then of course, uh, what to do when you have those unmated queens and colonies that are depending now on their success in making virgin flights. Thanks for being here. I hope you have a fantastic weekend.